This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Well, welcome, everybody. It is my great honor and pleasure to introduce um, my friend uh, Shogun Jody Green. Uh, welcome to Austin Zen Center. Jody uh, came to practice at um, Tassajara in a, in a work period in 2001. She has uh, received lay ordination from uh, Catherine Tanas at the Santa Cruz Zen Center. And she's gone on to do practice periods at Tassajara, four of them. Um, her and I did our first practice periods together in uh, 2008. Her teachers are Daijaku Kinst, who's in Santa Cruz, and also Leslie James, who's a um, resident teacher at Tassajara. Jody is also an academic um, and is currently the vice provost for teaching and learning and professor of literature and feminist studies at uh, UC Santa Cruz. She's got a, an extensive academic CV and, and some of it is on her, on her bio in on our webpage. Um, but also recently Jody's been re, uh, leading trips to Ladakh on kind of uh, spiritual journeys with um, you know, taking friends with her and uh, acting as a kind of tour guide. And one of these trips I would love to eventually be able to go on with her. But anyway, without further ado, um, Jody Green, thank you so much for being here. So much, Tim. So good morning. Um, and thank you, Tim, for the kind introduction. And thank you to Tim and Mako for not only this invitation, but just for walking really to the right and the left of me on this path for most of my time in the Dharma. Um, I consider you my, my close sibling kin. I also want to thank my teachers, known and unknown. Some of them will make cameo appearances in what I have to say today. Um, also making cameo appearances will be Kinu, uh, my small dog, whom you may already have noticed. Uh, I am blessed to have a, a little practice, a little tiny house that I practice in in my backyard, and she loves to be here with me. So um, she'll be here for the talk. I'm trying to figure out how not to have her be here for the workshop, because um, that'll just be too comical. Uh, the second I get on my mat, she likes to jump on me. So, so uh, I'll talk for a little while, and then I hope that we can have some conversation. Um, I did write up my remarks. One of the things that I've learned spending 9 to 12 hours on Zoom uh, a day in my job as the instructional continuity czar uh, at UC Santa Cruz for the last four and a half months is that uh, it's much more difficult for me to just speak extemporaneously than it is in person. Uh, I really lose track of what I was planning to say. And I think a lot of us feel the cognitive load of, of Zoom. And so um, if I appear to be reading, that's because I, I am mostly reading. Um, but I'll look up from time to time and see if Tim is waving at me because something's gone wrong. So yes, this, uh, this talk is called The Bodies We Wake Up In. Um, and that is uh, plural because there's many of us here, but it's also plural because I want to talk today about, about more than one kind of body. Uh, and so we'll, we'll move into that as I go along, but I want to start with a poem. And the poem goes like this. Stacking our bones upright, 
on the flat earth, we each dig a cave in space. Directly, we pass through the gate of dualism and grasp hold of a black lacquered tub. Stacking our bones upright on the flat earth, we each dig a cave in space. Directly, we pass through the gate of dualism and grasp hold of a black lacquered tub. So this poem is very old. It's by Dogen's teacher, Tendo Nyojo, and it describes what we are doing when we start a period of practice. So I know the poem because it appears in Shobogenzo Ango, in Dogen's poem about Ango, about practice period, as in the extended period of time that we set aside where, for instance, Tim and I met to practice for days or weeks or months on end. But I think it applies just as well to any time that we sit down to practice. And every time that we sit down to practice, we stack our bones upright on the flat earth and dig a cave in space. So I love this poem because I find it incredibly encouraging. Uh, in order to pass through or to directly pass through the gate of dualism, all we have to do is stack our bones upright on the flat earth. That's it. That's the totality of the instruction. All we have to do is sit down. And this is really what Suzuki Roshi told us as well. We use our still and upright physical body to make a metaphysical leap or transformation through the gate of dualism and the grasping hold of a black lacquer tub I'm not going to go into it's a it's just a it's a kind of a figure for whatever it is that's on the other side of the gate of dualism so the body is the gate of dualism that we have to pass through okay it's like a gate in the ocean there's a famous story in zen that some of you may know about a gate in the ocean and there's a fish that swims around the ocean for kalpas and kalpas and kalpas. And one day he just swims through, or she or they just swim through the gate and come out the other side a dragon. And I think here we are passing through a gate on the flat earth, not on the ocean, but there's a similar feeling of this kind of spontaneous transformation that happens the moment that we sit down. So no matter where we are, we make our seat on solid ground, on level ground, we balance our bones, individual and collective, on the Dharma seat created by the earth. So by allowing ourselves to be supported by the earth in this way, there's a kind of back and forth between my upright bones and the flat earth. And through that back and forth, which is really what I want to talk about today, we find the doorway to awakening. So once our bones are stacked, Tendo Nyojo tells us, we each dig a cave in space. And I think this is a really strange phrase, to dig a cave in space. So I'm sure you know that in many other wisdom traditions, for instance, in Ladakh, uh, on the border of India and Tibet, where I spend my time, we would make our home or practice place in a cave, right? So we go there to practice in a cave, and I've spent some time there in caves where people have been practicing for millennia. Uh, both Buddhist practitioners and pre-Buddhist yogic practitioners. But in our tradition, we don't make our practice place in a cave. So it's kind of interesting that according to Dogen's teacher, we still practice in a cave, but the cave that we make 
is a cave in space. It feels very Zen to me. You know, we don't need a material cave. We just make our cave in space. But it's still a really strange image. So a cave is a kind of structure or shelter with space inside it. But here we make a cave in space. The figure is almost turned inside out so that we put our body in a cave of space instead of putting our body in a cave of rock. I'm always wondering when I read this phrase, is our body inside the cave or is our body the cave? Is the cave filled with space or is the cave made of space? And how am I now supposed to think about my body? Is my body a stack of bones or is it a cave? Or is it something made of space, something almost transparent or non-substantial made of space? And what if a body can in fact be all three of these things? So hold that thought, because I really think that is how the body works in Zen. Uh, it's both a physical stack of bones, a refuge place, a place where we take refuge and find our shelter, our sharanam, as they say in Sanskrit, and also it's space itself, wide open, vast space. So I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but first, let's talk a little bit about this human body that we each have or inhabit. So the middle way of Buddhism has a complicated relationship to the physical body, and Zen, I think, uh, a complicated relationship to it in particular. As many of you surely know, the origin story of the Buddhist middle way is a story about the body. So Siddhartha Gautama, later the Buddha, had been practicing for six years radical acts of yogic asceticism out in the, the wild lands. And one day he was sitting there and he was spotted by a young milkmaid named Sujata. Uh, and Sujata basically took one look at this emaciated man who had not really consumed anything and was so proud of not having really consumed anything for six years and said to him, dude, or sir, you don't look so good. Would you like some kheer, rice pudding? Would you like some rice pudding? And luckily for all of us, Siddhartha's response was, you know, I would like some rice pudding now that you mention it. Actually, rice pudding sounds really, really good. And from this, the middle way was born. So why is it a middle way? It's a middle way between asceticism, uh, emaciation, extinguishing all bodily attributes and desires, and indulgence, consumption, and excess. And I always think of it as like the middle way between plain rice with nothing on it and sweet pudding is rice pudding. So that's our middle way. It's this kind of middle in between these two ways, not only of being, but of uh, particularly between two ways of having a body or being in our bodies. So from the very beginning, it is, uh, this tradition is all about embodiment. Nonetheless, many of you are probably familiar with the early Buddhist or Theravadan kind of denigration of the body. And that is still a part of Tibetan Buddhist practice. And I, I practice with Tibetan teachers, some of whom I'll, I'll talk about later. And in, in Tibetan practice, we meditate on the body as a skin bag, a pile of bones, not a stack of bones, but a pile of bones, uh, a sack of pus and shit. Like those are all meditations that we engage in and also decomposing bodies. Uh, we do meditation on those. 
But over the years of trying to sort of come to terms with my own embodiment and think about why we engage in those activities, given my understanding of the non-dualism of our tradition, I don't think that when we do those meditations, it's supposed to be out of a kind of fundamental disgust of the body or a desire to get rid of it. I don't think it's so much a rejection of the body, a kind of moral relationship to the body, as it is a mnemonic device, a way of remembering. And what is it that we're trying to remember when we meditate in that way? We're trying to remember impermanence. So when we think about the body as just made up of its material parts and also of those material parts as decomposing, what we're really thinking about is the temporariness of our bodies. It's to remember that we will die and that this body of ours is just on loan. So that's my understanding of those really traditional meditations uh, outside of the Zen tradition. So if you think about how the body is talked about within the Zen tradition, one not entirely positive view of the body can be found in Dogen's uh, Raihai Tokazui, which is prostrating to the attainment of the marrow. It's beautiful, fascicle about bowing. And in there, Dogen says the following. He says, if we attach even slightly more weight to self-regard for the body than to the Dharma, the Dharma is not transmitted to us. If we attach even slightly more weight to self-regard for the body than to the Dharma, the Dharma is not transmitted to us. So this is a fairly familiar admonishment. Do not overvalue the body. But the text doesn't say don't value the body. It doesn't say don't hold your body as a worthy thing. It just says don't value it more than the Dharma. And also, I think really importantly, it's not the danger of, of having a body so much as it is of having self-regard for the body. So regarding the body as myself or as mine. So this passage is really about the suffering that takes place when we regard the body as our personal property and identify with it completely, identify it with it as uh, the be all and end all of who we are. So the body is only a problem, you could say, in that fascicle when it increases my sense of a separate bounded self, and especially when it becomes not a means to the end of waking up, but a kind of end in itself, a thing to prize and praise and by which to measure my worth. So over and against that warning about self-making or I-making through the body, we have the other side of the Zen coin. Uh, this very mind is Buddha and this very body is Buddha. Body and nowhere else, or taking the eye out of it, awakening occurs, awareness is activated in and through these five skandhas. Okay. These five skandhas being the makeup of my body. If there's going to be any waking up, it's going to have to happen in and through my body. So this makes sense given that we know in the Zen tradition, waking up happens through the practice of Zazen, which is an embodied practice, right? It is first and foremost a practice of sitting or shikantaza, just sitting. And we'll come back to that just later. 
as one of the chants says, total devotion to immovable sitting. Okay, total devotion to immovable sitting. And even beyond this just sitting, we hear a lot in the Zen tradition about what are called the four dignities, standing, walking, sitting, and lying down, right? Zazen occurs standing, walking, sitting, and lying down. And all of these are embodiments. All of these are ways of being in our body. As Gary Snyder says, they are dignities in that they are ways of being fully ourselves at home in our bodies in their fundamental modes. At home in our bodies in their fundamental modes. And I love this idea of being at home in our bodies, that being at home in our bodies is something we have to practice, okay? Being at home in our bodies is something we have to take up as a practice since we are so often elsewhere, up in our heads or off in dreamland. How often do we remember that we have a body because we just slammed into the corner of the kitchen counter or tripped over the sidewalk, right? We are out of our bodies so much of the time. And one of the really salutary parts of this practice for me has been the way in which it's put me in my body and made me find a home in this embodiment of mine. Coming home to our bodies, Gary Snyder says, is a way of being fully ourselves and of inhabiting our dignity as human creatures. And I think this is kind of what happens when Siddhartha says yes to the rice pudding, right? He's like, oh, right, I, got, I get to have a body, right? I got to have this form to wake up in, and I shouldn't just toss it away. I was really amazed to find that this notion of the four dignities, standing, walking, sitting, and lying down, it appears in Sanskrit, it appears in Pali, it appears in Chinese, it appears in Japanese. And in Japanese, uh, shigi, it means the four presences. So dignity and presence are the ways that we are supposed to uh, relate to our bodies. Standing, walking, sitting, and lying down are all ways of being present to ourselves and to the world. And if we want to directly experience full presence, we have to be willing to be intimate with our embodiment and to inhabit our bodies with dignity. And if you think about it, this is not something that we talk about very much when we talk about meditation popularly, okay? If you stop somebody in the street and you ask them, what is meditation? What is your understanding of meditation? they will immediately say something to you about doing something with your mind, okay? They'll talk to you about stopping the thoughts, they'll talk to you about stilling the mind, quieting chatter, as the Yoga Sutras say, stilling the fluctuations of the mind, right? So that's what people think meditation is. They think it's in your head, right? Something happening in your head. Very, very rarely will anyone say anything at all about the body. And yet, nearly all of these traditions and Zen foremost among them begin the discussion of meditation, a word we don't even use in our tradition for this reason, with the body, and in particular with a notion of bodily uprightness. Stacking our bones upright on the flat earth is the first thing that we do in practice period. It's the first thing we do when we want to pass through the gate of dualism we gather our body in an upright and dignified way. So 
why uprightness, right? What does this uprightness have to do with waking up? Why is it so central to the practice of shikantaza or zazen? And is it really the case that people who don't sit up straight will never be enlightened? So uprightness in our tradition is not a simple analogy or metaphor, which is how it sometimes gets talked about. Sometimes it's like, just as you should be ethically upright, so you should take the posture of physical uprightness. But that's not really how it works. We are told that being physically upright, collected, settling ourselves on ourselves, one of the phrases I really love, vertebra by vertebra, bone by stacked bone, is the practice of zazen. That is all zazen is, is stacking our bones upright on the flat earth. To be physically collected or attuned like this allows us to be still, but it also has a profound effect on what Zen commentators like Uchiyama Roshi and Katagiri Roshi call our life force. And so what I really want to kind of work at today is the relationship between uprightness and our life force. What do they have to do with each other? So in Opening the Hand of Thought, there's a chapter called The Reality of Zazen. And in that chapter, Uchiyama Roshi says the following thing. Doing correct Zazen means taking the correct posture and entrusting everything to it. Doing correct Zazen means taking the correct posture and entrusting everything to it. So this is not mincing words, right? First, we take the correct posture, then we trust it completely. But what is it that we trust about it? What are we supposed to be trusting in? He says the Zazen posture is a marvelous posture because it is the best one for throwing out our petty human thoughts. Okay, the Zazen posture is a marvelous posture because it is the best one for throwing out our petty human thoughts. So, upright posture is trustworthy because it changes the way my mind works. And if I focus my attention on what the body is doing, in some way, the mind will take care of itself. Okay. So again, against our most people's understanding of meditation, our tradition tells us, put your focus on your body and the mind will take care of itself. Okay. Somehow we assume this thing he calls the correct posture, and then something happens to our minds. They kind of automatically or directly discard our petty human thoughts. And probably you've had some experience with this in your life, right? Uh, you know, maybe you've been in a situation in which you're uncomfortable and you've shifted your posture in order to relate differently to the situation that's happening. We kind of instinctively know. I remember when I came back from that first practice period in 2008, I noticed that whenever I went into my department meeting and I come from a very uh, contentious department. I would sit in department meetings at the seminar table like this, like literally guarding my entire body against my colleagues. And I made this commitment that I would sit up straight in department meetings and see how that physical openness might change my experience of the room. It wasn't completely successful, but it, it did help. Okay. But what exactly is this correct posture and what does it mean to do correct zazen because i'm sure some of you are out there thinking i don't like all this correctness talk 
Okay, we might worry a little bit about this. It seems kind of ableist, right? It seems to have one view of how our body ought to be. And this is where I have just found reading for this talk so incredibly encouraging. And I wanna share a little bit of that with you, okay? So you might worry hearing this talk about correctness, if I can't do the correct posture, does that really mean there's no way I can ever wake up? Like, am I doomed? Should I just give up the Zen practice altogether if I can't sit up straight in this perfect postural alignment? That sounds terrible. I used to suffer from terrible back pain. I've had seven, count them, seven major orthopedic surgeries. I've spent years of my life not able to sit in anything that could be construed as correct Zazen posture. And you might wonder, was I just completely wasting my time? Well, Uchiyama Roshi says, not exactly, no. He goes on to qualify or further define what he means by correctness. And it's one of these wonderful moments of what I think of as kind of classic Zen humor. He says, doing Zazen is to be full of life, aiming at holding a correct Zazen posture. Okay, Doing Zazen is to be full of life, aiming at holding a correct Zazen posture. So you might think, well, maybe he just said that by accident. Maybe he just was writing and he threw that aiming in there. But what he really meant was take a correct Zazen posture. Not at all. Okay. So aiming at holding a correct Zazen posture isn't just a verbal slip. He actually ends up talking at great length about what he means by aiming at a correct posture as opposed to actually achieving one. And he insists that in Zazen, we take aim at a target called the correct posture, but in fact, there is no such thing as a correct posture. As Shohaku Okamura would say, there is no such correct posture, <laughs> right? There is no such thing as a correct posture. Uchiyamaroshi says, is there such a thing as succeeding or hitting the mark? Here is where Zazen becomes unfathomable. In Zazen, we have to vividly aim at holding the correct posture, yet there is no mark to hit. Okay, there is no mark to hit. So the act of aiming is how we summon our life force. When we aim at doing something correctly, everything comes together in us, but the outcome is actually completely not important here. And this reminds me of a famous story I'm sure some of you know about Kobanchino Roshi, who went down to uh, Esalen, a place south of where I live in California, a very beautiful retreat center where I have been blessed to teach. And they love to tell this story uh, at Esalen. So Kobanchino Roshi um, was a master of Kyudo, of, of Zen archery. And so they asked him to come down and teach a course at Esalen about Zen archery. And so there's this beautiful field over the Pacific Ocean at Esalen and then this cliff that drops off and they set up this target right on the edge of the cliff and everybody came at Esalen, probably 150 people standing there watching Kobanchino Roshi, the great Japanese archery master. And Koban was very uh, dramatic. Um, and so he probably took a long time getting out his bow and notching his arrow and lining up and aiming. And finally, he drew back the bow and let it go. And the arrow went sailing across the field right over the target and landed in the Pacific Ocean. And Covencino yelled, bullseye! And that was his lesson. Okay. 
that was his lesson. So what is it about this experience that qualified as a bullseye? It is the fact that he had taken aim and made his whole life force present to the experience. Hitting or not hitting the arrow is not the, uh, the target is not the point. Shooting the arrow is the point. Shooting the arrow is the practice. And so if you completely summon yourself to aim in that way, it really doesn't matter whether or not you hit the mark. And this is, of course, exactly what Uchiyama Roshi is saying. He says, we should be wide awake, aiming at the correct posture with our flesh and bones. So you can imagine when you sit down in Zazen, you can literally imagine stringing your body like a bow and your life force like an arrow. Okay. That's what we're being asked to do here. He says, aim at the correct posture, not with your head, but with your flesh and bones, or elsewhere he even says muscles and bones. Okay, we can't think our way into a correct zazen posture, although we sure do try, and any idea that we have about a correct zazen posture will miss the mark. We have to actually embody that posture and live it. Okay. Remember, zazen is to be wide awake, full of life, aiming at holding a correct zazen posture. And then he says, aiming at this posture of body and life as it is, is referred to as shikantaza, just sitting. And I love that just at that point, right? You've summoned all the life force energy to just sit. So Ujiyama Roshi is telling us that sitting zazen is something that we do with our bodies, but in particular, it's something that we do with our life force. He says the most essential thing is that our life force live to its fullest potential. Zazen is the most condensed form of life functioning as wide awake life. So that wide awakeness is not a mark that we're hitting at, that we're aiming at. When we sit Zazen, we're not sitting in order to become wide awake. We are sitting as wide awake bodies wide awake life force itself. What it means to be upright is not about an orientation to your physical deportment, although that helps, and that's part of what we'll talk about this afternoon, but it's primarily about an orientation to your life force. We want our energy to be unimpeded, focused, and awake, and that is what makes Zazen, Zazen. Stacking our bones upright on the flat earth. Okay. Aligning our body and stacking our bones is one way, though not the only way, of helping to prompt our life force to flow free, freely and to be wide awake. It allows us to make maximum use of the flat earth to support us when we balance our bodies. It allows our natural skeletal alignment to hold our flesh and muscle with the least waste of energy. It allows the breath to flow most clearly through the kumba, the central jar of our bodies. It prevents blockages of blood flow and breath that sap our energy. All of these things are true about our uprightness. It creates space in the body which magically creates space in the thoughts. 
But even more important than this sitting up straight is the directing of our life force. He says our posture must be full of life and energy, no matter what shape our body makes or does not make. Of course, many times in our sitting practice, we do not feel aligned, dignified, upright, full of life, and wide awake. At least I don't. Uh, we feel pain, imbalance, shutting down, trapped energy. We find old storehouses of unfelt emotion, old hurts, epigenetic trauma, knots of stale or stagnant energy. There's even a name for those knots of stale energy. In Sanskrit, they're called granti knots bound places that we are trying to unbind. And I would propose to you that if you encounter these knots in your sitting, that rather than pushing them away or disparaging them, you should meet them with the energy of unconditional love. That is the appropriate way to respond to pain. They are good teachers and they are very persistent, like hungry children who will not go away. As my first teacher, Catherine Thanis, said, the deep attending to hard knots of holding is a powerfully compassionate act, a turning towards rejected parts of our being. And she interestingly called it the beginning of metta practice, of loving kindness for the self. So when we do metta practice, we're not often thinking, first and foremost, about our own bodies. And Catherine said, if you want to learn loving kindness, practice it on the pain in your own body. So notice, as you're sitting, how you engage with, respond to, and speak to your pain in Zazen, and you will discover what kind of training you are engaged in. If you don't know how to bring the energy of compassion and loving kindness to your own pain, if you consistently show frustration, anger, and impatience with that pain, how will you be with someone else's? So it's our first teacher. The body is our first teacher of compassion, of metta. And also notice if and when you feel pain in your physical sitting practice, which is your sitting practice, how much that leads you to withdraw and close in and shut down. Notice what happens to your energy and your openness when you are in physical or psychological pain. When we feel pain, we quite literally lose our balance by collapsing in on ourselves. And you can see this if you've ever had the chance to walk around a Zendo when there's people in the Zendo. Remember when we used to go to Zendos? You can see people are all, you can literally see them kind of hunched around their pain. It's a really intense experience. Um, and most of us, in addition to collapsing around ourselves, push other ways, others away, speak harshly to ourselves, and lose contact with ourselves, with each other, with direct experience, and above all, with our seat. And that brings me back to Tendonyojo and the flat earth one more time. Why is it important that we find flat earth on which to stack our bones? What role does the steady support of the earth itself have in enabling our uprightness and securing our capacity to summon our life force, as Uchiyama Roshi said? 
So the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Anne Klein, who is also one of my teachers uh, and is your neighbor over in Houston. Some of you may know her as Lama Rigzin of Don Mountain in Houston. She writes beautifully about the ways in which being anchored to the flat earth, anchored in something other than our own body and mind, breaks down the erroneous notion that we fall into, especially when we're in pain, that our bodies are a small closed system separated from the rest of the world. And so this is a nice antidote to the way in which when we shift our attention from the mind to the body, we then have to make a further shift to open the body again. And our sitting on the earth is a great way, she says, to do this. So she says, the illusion of your separateness can be disrupted at any moment in time simply by connecting deeply with the flat earth on which you are standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. The earth is a kind of ever-present antidote to separation and a reminder of the extent to which we are companioned and supported every step of the way. Stacking our bones upright on the flat earth, we each dig a cave in space and pass through the gate of dualism, we don't do that alone. It sounds like we're doing it alone, but actually we do it only enabled by the support and presence of the flat earth. She says to inhabit our body fully and to feel connected through it to the earthy body underneath us is to be physically grounded, able to inhabit our bodies, as the mooring and support for all our activities. And I love this idea because instead of grounded, feeling like here's my body and here's the earth body and I am grounded on the earth, it actually makes continuity between our body and the ground. And you can try a simple experiment if this uh, sense of connectedness is not immediately apparent to you, which is to simply get still on your seat or cushion and breathe a few times and then draw your attention to the place where your body is touching the earth and see if you can find the boundary. Okay. The stiller you get, the harder it is to find the boundary. The same thing happens. You can close your eyes and put your hand on your knee and take a few breaths. And if you're really still, it's impossible to tell where your hand ends and where the knee begins. So this sense of continuity, on the one hand, it grounds us, and on the other hand, it opens us. It makes us boundless, okay? We know that we must be emotionally grounded and ethically upright to access our awakened nature, but we sometimes don't understand very well the role that the body also plays in this grounded uprightness. We lose track of the fact that the earth is our ever-present foundation and support, and we're gonna work with this this afternoon. So connecting deeply with our sitting bones or our feet when we're sitting or standing brings an almost spontaneous kind of opening. Klein says, for stability of mind, stability of body is essential. Okay, mountain body supports mountain mind is the way that Dogen would say it. There's a reason that when the Buddha was challenged to prove that he had woken up under the Bodhi tree, he said only one sentence. He said, the earth is my witness. 
okay? The earth is my witness. The earth knows what's going on with me under the Bodhi tree, okay? Nobody else, don't take my word for it. Don't take any other word for it. Trust the earth. So the earth is not just a simple prop in the drama of our awakening. It is a kind of co-conspirator or partner in that awakening. And this is really where I wanted to move us today. Coming home to our bodies and then noticing that that homecoming also puts us with all beings. The earth has a body too. I like that Anne Klein calls it the earthy body. Okay. And connecting with that earthy body rather than demonstrating the clear boundaries between my body and the world, actually demonstrates what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. Interbeing. The more centered we are in our bodies, the more we trust the earth, okay, and the more centered we are in the earth, trusting our bodies, the more capable we are of recognizing how much we depend on everything around us and the more we relinquish what Dogen called our self-regard for the body. And Klein says, if we understand our physical bodies as selectively porous, selectively porous in, allow, in ways that allow us to receive what is helpful and release what is not, the space through which we understand ourselves to move is expanded. It becomes easier to sense that the groundedness of the earth and the openness of the sky are qualities that move through us, not objects we gaze at out there. Okay, so the earth moves through us and the sky moves through us. I think this is part of how, when we stack our bones upright on the flat earth, we dig a cave in space. Tendo Nyojo is reminding us that the upright boundless the upright grounded body is also a boundless body, not a small closed system, but directly in touch with the energy of the universe itself. The porous body, you could say, is like a superconductor of all the energy that exists and has ever existed in the universe. The life force that I summon when I sit is not my life force, it's the life force. Okay. As Shohaku Okamura, Uchiyama's pupil, put it, this body and mind named Shohaku includes everything in this entire universe, not just from my birth, but from the Big Bang. Okay, this body and mind named Shohaku includes everything in this entire universe, not just from my birth, but from the Big Bang. This is an incredibly radical recognition that we are made up not only of, as Walt Whitman likes to say, stardust, of the matter released in the Big Bang, but that our life force energy is the energy released in the Big Bang as well. As the great Zen teacher, Katagiri Roshi, who welcomed Shohaku Okamura to the States in Minnesota said, when you become aware of the magnificent energy of being arising in your body and mind, you feel fully alive. You are boundless and broad, compassionate and kind. This is the guideline for living as a human being. So I close with Katagiri Roshi because of the remarkable way in which he upsets our notion of the body as a bounded proprietary space 
and remind us, reminds us that our body too is boundless, is space. For Ketagiri Roshi, our life and body are nothing but this original energy, the one that goes back to the origin of the universe itself and learning to connect with, access, and draw from that energy is the essence of Shikantaza. The essence of Shikantaza. When you sit, Katagiri Roshi says, you directly experience pure energy as the core of your own being, and you realize that you can always depend on it. Okay, so there's that same trustworthiness that Uchiyama Roshi is talking about, right? We trust the life force energy more and more. This moving, pulsing, boundless energy is something we can trust in, depend on, and lean into as reliable once we learn to access it as the flat earth itself. And the only way you can access that life force energy is through your one unique and bounded human body. You cannot get at it any other way. The very one that is standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. Consider how much time you spend thinking about your mind and thoughts and what they are doing in practice and ask yourself if maybe, just maybe, by being so preoccupied with your mind activity, you have missed the mark entirely. So I'll end with one last passage from Katagiri Roshi. He says, you don't know what your human body is. You don't know what your human body is. It is just something vividly alive, hopping along, working with the universe activity itself. Your human body is a bag of skin. And simultaneously, it is something beyond a bag of skin. It is spiritual. So accept your human body as Buddha. Because you have body, pure energy is always with you. It's too close for you to know it, but you can be it. This is our practice. So if you have a question and you put your hand up, I will be able to take a stack as we say, which is a fancy way of saying keep track. Yeah, Richard. I have a question. Um, thank you for that talk. That was great. Um, I've been studying the paramitas. And right now, I've been studying the, the, uh, the fourth paramita, the one about energy. I noticed you mentioned that a lot, and I, um, in the book that I'm reading, it talks about how we tend to, uh, bodhisattvas are generally encouraged to focus on the energy of the mind, and, um, but they're also encouraged to focus on the energy of the body, and ha and, but the practices are not generally uh, elaborated in traditional Buddhist texts. Um, are you talking about this sort of thing? Are you talking about the... the the, pro, the paramita of energy and, and, and practices for engaging the energy body. Is that, is that correct? Um, yes, in a way it's correct. Uh, so I'm definitely talking about Virya, um, about that energy uh, that is one of the paramitas. And I think it's really great that, that you're bringing that in because often Virya is talked about as sort of diligence 
or uh, perseverance. And I think there's a bit too much strain in that, right? Like, like the energy that Katagiri Roshi is talking about and that Ushiyama Roshi are talking about, I don't think of them so much as perseverance and diligence. I think of them as a kind of well that I'm learning to tap into. Um, you know, to answer your question personally for myself, um, I did take up the practice of yoga to support my sitting. And that has taken me on a journey without which I probably would not have been able to persevere in the Zen school because I had to do so much work with my body and with my own embodiment, not just to be able to sit for long periods, but to be able to find joy in our practice. So, you know, I really appreciate that Uchiyama Roshi and Katagiri Roshi kind of talk as though we could access that life force just by sitting a lot. But for me, I had to, first of all, open my physical body, which is part of what we'll be talking about this afternoon, and then become very interested for many years in the way in which energy uh, emerges in the physical body. Um, what you're referring to as subtle body practice, but it's very hard for us to come directly at the subtle body. I think people try in other traditions that I've practiced in to sort of go right into subtle body practices. And I think it's a better for us <laughs> to really come home to these bodies. And when we do that and we begin to release some of those grunty, some of those knots, the energy begins to flow in and of itself. And, you know, I think that's, a, we're less likely to go off the rails, to be completely honest with you, uh, than if we try to kind of jump into subtle body practices, because those are generally pretty advanced practices. And I'm here to tell you, you can do a very simple physical practice, and you will begin to feel how the energy body functions. Um, and, and, you know, that way we don't get... Uh, we don't have too much self-regard for the body, as Dogen would say. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yes. Great. Yeah, I guess um, what I've been, uh, the thing that sort of jumped out at me in the text that I was reading is about how important it is to have, to tap into the energy of the body in order to be, to persist in the, the, the bodhisattva work, which is presumably very daunting and, and we can get discouraged and maybe um, we need to tap into some sort of energy to uh, persist. And that I, I think what that maybe what I'm hearing from you also is that the idea that you need to sort of tap into some sort of energy or prana or something to like, just keep the body going in order to, to wake up. Yeah. I mean, I wish I'd said that. Um, but that is where that is the direction that one would need to go. Right. And I love that you bring the Bodhisattva vow into it because, you know, in a lifetime of practice, as you say so beautifully, it is easy to become discouraged, uh, especially at the moment. Uh, it's very easy, I think, to be discouraged and to be able to, uh, find within yourself. I think I referred to it in the, in the text for this as, as your birthright. That was a really huge awakening for me when I realized that accessing the life force energy is part of my birthright. And I love Katagiri Roshi's insistence that if you don't understand this, you don't yet know what a gift it is to be alive in a human body. And so for those of us who maybe struggle with the human humans and their human delusions, 
beginning to connect to that life force energy, it can actually confer not just the energy to go on as a bodhisattva, but also a much deeper appreciation for the preciousness of human life. So, yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your wonderful question. I have a question. Yeah. Hi. Uh, yes. I'm, I'm, I, I'm a, a academic clinical psychologist interested in trauma and how it affects pain. So that's sort of a longstanding issue. Um, and I've been doing some work on um, health disparities in pain mm. among uh, Latinx and African-Americans and uh, with um, collaborators as well. But one of the things that I've been thinking about during your talk and mulling about recently is sort of what do we do with our outrage? Um, because there's, I mean, and the, the anger um, that, is, that is righteous that gets activated over mm -hmm. and over again. Um, in our practice, the, the lack of these embodied ways of, of processing, I think, contributes to it being split off and not worked through. But I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I've been also reading um, My Grandmother's Hands and thinking uh -huh. about it from that point of view as well. But um, is it, th those are my kind of uh, questions. Or sort of where, would, where, where, where are you thinking about how, these, how our practice works with other yogic practices and also emotion-focused processing of true um, outrage about injustice. How, 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 do you, how do you frame that? How do you see that? Yeah, thank you for that question. And, and um, yeah, so I think there's two, I'm, I'm hearing two pieces of your question. One mm -hmm. is uh, in this great stillness of our practice, how do we think about energetic release? Um, and particularly if we carry, as I do, um, considerable this life trauma, and if you believe in such a thing, epigenetic trauma, um, mm -hmm. trauma of your ancestors, and we all carry epigenetic trauma, by the way. Um, some of us just live more proximately to it than others. Um, because if we're made of the everything that goes back to the beginning of time, we're made of a lot of pain in addition to a lot of um, really great stuff. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'll answer you personally first and say, for me, I had to do other practices. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to do practices that put me in my body because it was not a place that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, for a long time, I didn't want to be in this life for a half century. I really didn't want to be in this life. And so one of the ways that I found to come into my life was by coming into my body. Mm -hmm. So I did do a lot of asana practice. I also do a lot of chanting practice, uh, bhakti yoga, um, Krishna Das kind of stuff. Uh, if that means something to you, if you don't know what bhakti yoga is, and that has been really transformative, utterly transformative for me. You know, in, in that tradition, they say that the universe started with, uh, with an om, but the, the vibration of that sound is what got everything moving in the universe. And I feel that chanting practice 
for me does vibrate through the grunthy. It literally undoes the knots through sort of bombarding them, right? Almost like an ultrasound uh, mm -hmm. internally for me. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I'm going to say I'm not a pure Zen practitioner. And uh, what I will say is that the more of those kinds of activities I did, the more able I've become to sit and to feel the life force energy moving in my own sitting. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say it depends on how much crud you're carrying, uh, how, you know, whether you really feel the necessity of doing these other practices. I know people who seem to be fine just sitting. Um, so that's one answer. The other answer, which you're asking about our outrage, um, is, you know, that is the question to go back to what Richard said about what do we do with our bodhisattva vow uh, in the face of, you know, human injustice. Uh, and um, particularly, what do we, you know, what do we do with it right now, in which, in some ways, the universe has handed us the most bizarre double injunction, stay home and get out in the streets, right? So we're being asked to do both of these things at the same time. And I think a lot of us feel sort of short-circuited by that double injunction, especially if you live in a place where there aren't protests happening, like the one where I live. Um, so then I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the action that I can take, right? What is the action that I must take and that I can take? You know, in our workplaces, it's, you know, doing the work of anti-racist pedagogy, right? That's important work. We're teachers. If we are ourselves so ignorant that we keep passing on these wounds, then it is direct action for us to educate ourselves better and to learn to become better educators, right? That is a path for your outrage, just as much as going out and yelling in the streets. So I think the question is not what, you know, what in toto should we be doing, but what can I do? Uh, and what, what is the best channel for my uh, outrage, if that's the word? Um, I'll also, since you talked about working on trauma in the physical body, I'm also just going to put in a side plug for craniosacral therapy because I think craniosacral therapy pretty much saved my life. So for those of you who know that you carry an extensive amount, what I found was that I had come a huge way psychically and emotionally with that traumatic residue, but my body still so clearly was carrying it, like the level of brokenness in my body and about two and a half years of craniosacral therapy, honestly, like I, I just can't believe that I live in this body without a disordered nervous system. I mean, it's really like instead of drinking water, I was drinking bleach my whole life and now I'm drinking water. You know, that's how it feels to be in my body with craniosacral therapy. So I don't understand how it works and I don't need to understand how it works, but I will tell you that if you have a disordered nervous system, you should give it a shot because it's a pretty, it's pretty amazing. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. I, I've been, I have another question, follow-up question, which is there's a, I've been noticing that people are really uncomfortable with their outrage and not staying with it. And then it's turning into despair and sadness or withdrawal. And there just seems to be something in 
these more embodied practices that let you move through it and integrate it uh, that yeah. needs to happen in order for it not to be seen as something to be disparaged, but something to be honored. <laughs> this life force is being thwarted in so many ways in so many people. Yeah. And also like, let's talk about creativity. I mean, I'm a child of ACT UP. Uh, I understand that there are now people who don't know what ACT UP is. So ACT UP is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which started in the 80s. Um, and we did really kind of outrageous. We were outrageous with our outrage, right? Mm -hmm. So we did things like go into St. Patrick's Cathedral and throw fake blood around in the middle of the AIDS epidemic to get people's attention. And when I saw the street um, in DC that Keisha Lance Bottoms painted with Black Lives Matter, my response to that was this howl of recognition of like, this is the first time since ACT UP that I feel like I've seen that energy. Outrage turned into art and spectacle and play. It was like a jaw-dropping thing to do. Like literally, you're gonna paint the whole street in front of the White House. It's mm -hmm. brilliant. So for people who are short-circuiting their outrage, I think creativity is a really great way to go with that, you know? Um, and that helps you sustain it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had this realization yesterday, you know, there's these very moving figures that are circulating right now about how the pandemic has killed, you know, more people than all the wars put together. 150,000 people is more people than most of the wars that the U.S. has ever been involved in. But 675,000 people have died of AIDS. And I feel like finally people might begin to wrap their head around that loss. You know, like 675,000 people. And, you know, yes, it's been 40 years, but still the scale of that loss is still with us, you know. Uh, and I think being able to sustain, when you think of something like that, being able to sustain your outrage is really crucial. So thank you for asking that question. Thank you. Yeah. Someone at Austin Zen Center has a question. <laughs> uh, Jody, hi, it's Carla Choro. Hi, nice to see you. Long see time you. to see. I just wanted to uh, say hello in part. It's been a long time since I saw you and uh, to thank you for a really great talk that wrapped together so many things. Um, I just gave a talk Wednesday night at uh, Santa Cruz Zen Center. <laughs> what you said, I wish I'd heard your talk first. <laughs> um, so I, uh, it, it wasn't coming from the same place at all, but um, about embodiment you know, the bodies that we live in and our ancestors, all of them, is what I've been trying to grapple with. And all I want to say about my experience of writing it is how exhausted I was when I, the days leading into the talk, I, I wrote it out. I'm a writer of talks also, so I don't get lost. <laughs> and um, the next day I felt liberated and not just from, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of stress around giving a talk period, you know, the performance anxiety, but I had confronted what I needed to confront and tried to express something about it. And 
um, I felt much lighter. And I think what you're talking about was part of that. Um, so thank you so much. Great I really talk. That. I really appreciate that. And writing is, you know, yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I got to visit with so many friends. <laughs> with Catherine, my first teacher, who is, you know, not in her body anymore, and with Uchi Amaroshi, with Shohaku, who's another of my teachers, with Anne Klein, with Katagiri Roshi, whom I venerate. Uh, if you haven't read um, his book about the life force, um, the name of which is going to escape me, I highly recommend it. It's my favorite book about Zen. Um, the subtitle is Zen and the Energy of Life. Uh, and, um, but I agree with you. It's always exhausting. You know, it's always exhausting. Uh, and yeah, trying to say, you know, categories first two books are called returning to silence and you have to say something. And I think about this almost every day, like our, that double injunction of our tradition. <laughs> I think I enjoyed it for a long time, not having to say anything, but. Now I have to say something sometimes. So, yes, I see a hand, an actual human hand, and your name is Maureen. There we go. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, your talk was amazing to me. You know, I was just sitting here, and 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 I know it was words and in somewhat academic, right? The way you um, um, pull things together. But the experience for me was like a body experience, right? It was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and um, I mean, really one of the best talks I've, I've ever heard. It was really amazing. Um, and I know, I, I don't know if this is gauche, inappropriate, but to the degree that you said you've written it down, I thought, oh my gosh, I would love to read that. And so I don't know if that's something you'd feel comfortable sharing as a written document. And I, and I also would get any concerns like, no, this is about the body, not about, you know, but um, so, so that thought for you, um, that'd be awesome. Of course, of course. Yeah, no, I don't have any problem with sharing it. I mean, I, one of the, that <laughs> I know that Taisho are supposed to put us in touch with impermanence because we don't get to read them. Uh, but nothing makes me happier than when someone comes out with a book of their Taisho, of their talks, because then you get to revisit and linger a little bit, you know, and, and there's a lot, I mean, I said a lot of things, you know, I tried to repeat myself, which is what you do when you want to say a lot of things, but also not want to say too many things. But um, yeah, I'm more than happy to share it. And thank you so much for your kind words. And I'm glad that the energy comes through. I uh, have learned to hide self view in zoom. Uh, and that has allowed me to be much freer in my communication. In fact, I was just looking at my brother, Tim, for the whole time that I was talking. He was all I could see on the screen. So I was really just talking to Tim and sharing my life force with Tim, as I have so many times. And Tim has actually been, stayed in the tiny house that I'm practicing in. So I also feel that Tim is here and also not here at the same time, which is really super cool. Yeah, great. Thank you. So I know you guys, yeah. oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear more about these uh, knots that you're talking about, or you call them, are they grungies? <laughs> Grunty, G-R-A-N-T-H-I. 
Uh, grant grantees. Yeah, um, it's just not something I'm familiar with. And I don't know, how do they tie into the kind of knots you tie your mind into, right? The barriers that you build up or the ill will that you generate that causes, to me, those are kind of knots to me. But but physical knots, I'm, I don't know. I'm not, I just like to know a little more about that. Um, well, it could be that you are blessed not to carry grunty in your body. Ah, um, um, and I would say for me, they're, they're not different from the kind that are in your mind. Uh, ah. <laughs> they're not different from them at all. They, they're just uh, located um, in a different place. And I think, you know, for most people, the easiest way to explain this would be to say, if you've ever had lower back pain, uh, you know, for years, you, you know, you'll say to yourself, um, oh yeah, it's, I was making the bed this morning and I, I put my back out. Uh, I mean, you make the bed every day, right? And then one day you make the bed and then you put your back out and then your back doesn't hurt and then it hurts again. And usually it's, you can usually find actually a small knot of muscle that is contracted. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me is incredibly similar to what's happening in my mind when I get, you know, knotted up around something in my mind. Uh, and so learning to bring uh, energy to those places, a lot of people in, um, in their zazen, particularly if they're, um, trying too hard holding the, the mudra will get these knots up here um, in their traps and in their this whole area of the body. That's a super common place to have knots. Um, so they are, they are energetic, but they can bind up muscle tissue, you know? Um, and, you know, I was talking about craniosacral therapy earlier, and one of the things that craniosacral helps you to do is to begin to notice how your nervous system can actually tie one of those knots pretty effectively, right? So you see something that is um, uh, upsetting to you, or some people would say triggering. I don't like that language. But if you see something that triggers you, you can literally feel a knot form in your body. And one of the ways that I've... Um, worked with those knots is to come to understand them as self-protective. Uh, so they are actually the body trying to defend itself against a perceived threat. Um, it's just that it's not a very skillful way to defend yourself against a perceived threat to have a spasm in your lower back, right? That's not going to help you when the person walking down the street is the person that you're afraid of. So it's the body sort of trying to gather its energy and take care of you in a way that's not skillful. Um, and I think, you know, many of us come in with knots that don't belong to us, uh, mm -hmm. particularly if you come from family histories of violence and substance abuse in particular. Um, we just come in with these knots, and I see a lot of nodding right now in the little Hollywood squares. Um, you come in with these knots and you think, you know, I mean, I already had like back spasms when I was like eight years old, you know, eight year old doesn't get back spasms, you know? So, you know, some of this stuff is, is, is bequeathed to us by our ancestors along with all the great stuff that means that we're sitting here uh, practicing together this morning. So I think learning how to untie those knots, and I was also given a very helpful piece of advice 
by Daijaku, uh, one of my teachers, um, which is a strangely gendered thing. And I don't know whether, I don't know how I feel about the gendering of it, but she said to me really early in working with me, she said, um, women uh, are untying the knots of the karma of their ancestors. So we work through our own this life trauma and then we work through our ancestors trauma. Now that distinction doesn't really work because our own knots are the knots of our ancestors, but it's this idea that when we're taking apart these, these knotted places, whether they're in our bodies or our minds, we're freeing that life force energy that's coming through from the big bang to us. Right. And it's getting stuck or blocked. And so we're just opening up the road for that energy to flow more freely. And then that, and then we give that to others too. Like they come into contact with us and they don't feel, I mean, you probably can think of someone immediately who's got a ton of blocked energy and how uncomfortable it is to be around somebody who's very tied up in knots, right? We have that phrase. Um, so part of what we're trying to do is not be that person who's always tied up in knots. Uh, thank you, thank you, that's wonderful. Yeah. Tracy. Figure out how to unmute because you reminded me. Yeah, I like looking at myself. Let's hide myself. That self-view is very helpful. <laughs> then I'm looking at you and not me <laughs> and everyone else. Uh, yeah, I knew you weren't saying grumpy knots at the time, but I was saying that to myself. Yeah, there's a lot of grumpy knots. But, and, and maybe this is just a comment, really, not, maybe you might say something to it. But uh, yes, I'm really acutely aware uh, from all the sitting, apart from the, quite apart from the contractions, uh, the, the stored traumas, the, the reactive bits that are being, still being held, uh, presently and from the past that th there's just an awareness of uh, the almost continuous state of as soon as my attention is not always but as soon as my attention is like exclusively on some one thing i'm kind of holding uh and uh um and it's really in the body, and, a, a, and that's what I wake up to. And it's like, oh, yeah. Uh, holding, oh, yeah. Uh, endlessly, <laughs> that experience. And it just struck me, uh, just on a, on a bigger level, that this is just the nature of how, but this is just what it is to be, well, let's say human, that when we're, our attention is, ex, of duality, that's what I'm trying to say, of our ex, exclusive attention, it's like everything else goes away because our attention is exclusively, th th then there's contraction, there, then there's holding. It, it, so as for the, the, the grantees, did you say, the grantees? That, that's something a little different, but maybe running alongside, or I don't know if you want to say anything about that. I mean, I think it's complicated because uh, 
you know, Dogen also teaches us that doing one practice is practicing completely. And so if you can completely absorb yourself in the sound of a canyon wren, let's say, it doesn't necessarily have to be contracted. Huh. Uh -huh. Everything is also right there, right? And right. that's part of what they're saying about, it's not that the energy of the Big Bang is dispersed amongst us little bits and little bits in each of us. It's that all of that energy is in each of us and all of that energy is in the Canyon Wren. Mm. So, you know, one thing to say is that. And then the other thing to say is just um, to be so appreciative, really so deeply appreciative of the thing in you that notices and then relaxes. Yes. Because that is, that is your enlightenment. I mean, that is, that is the enlightenment that you carry with you already. It's like Krishnadas says when you're chanting, Ram, 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 and your, your mind floats away in thought, why do you ever come back? <laughs> right? You come right. back because you are awake. Uh -huh. Right? So right. we tend to um, hammer ourselves for having gone away. But he says, appreciate deeply that you've done enough practice in enough lifetimes that you know how to come back. Because most people, they, de they never do anything but go away. Yes. Right? There is nothing but going away. And so, you know, you have all made this beautiful commitment to try to show up or be present or cultivate the four presences. Uh, that's a wonderful, marvelous thing. You know, it's a marvelous thing. So someone asked me to reread the last quotation and maybe that's um, a wonderful place for us to close. Um, Katagiri Roshi says, you don't know what your human body is. I mean, what an amazing thing to say. You don't know, you've been living in it, coterminous with it. You don't know what it is. You don't know what your human body is. It is just something vividly alive, hopping along, hopping along, working with the universe activity itself. Your human body is a bag of skin, and simultaneously it is something beyond a bag of skin. It is spiritual. So there goes dualism, right? There goes Cartesian dualism right out the window. Your body is spiritual. So accept your human body as Buddha. Don't run around trying to find Buddha. Accept your human body as Buddha because you have body. I love it. He puts it in quotation marks and he doesn't say a body. He said, because you have body, pure energy is always with you. It's too close for you to know it, but you can be it. This is our practice. And if you've never read the wonderful book, Being Bodies, uh, that's the book where the Anne Klein essay that I referred to and the Catherine Thanis essay that I referred to are. It's been, it's been around for a long time, this book, but it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful book about the body in Zen. And this is our practice to be our own bodies. That is a lifetime's work for us for some reason. Strange humans that we are is just to be our bodies, not to be in them, but to be them and to, to recognize that the only way we can learn about being 
is by being these bodies that we that we are. Thank you all so much.